0: This past week, I came across an article from The Atlantic with the title, How I Demolished My Life, A Home Improvement Story. Now, with a with a title like that and the source from which I encountered it, I was expecting some kind of a story about a do-it-yourself home improvement project gone wrong with someone completely incompetent taking on a project that was way too big for them, where the person attempting the repairs <laughs> ended up destroying their home and <laughs> ruining their marriage in the, in the process. I mean, what what would you what would you expect? A home improvement story how I demolished my life. And if that were the story, I would have expected some kind of moral, some kind of moral of the story being don't do this yourself, leave it to the pros, you non-professionals are incompetent. Don't don't even try this. But but I was wrong. I was completely wrong. That was not the nature of the article. The article was written by a woman who was at one time a married mother of three young children, got tired of the house always being a mess, was interested at first in some home renovations in her kitchen, but after some investigations were made, she decided she realized that she didn't want that kitchen. She realized, she said, that she didn't want that life, that life that she was living. In her words, she said, I didn't want to renovate, I wanted to get divorced. And from there, she gives the rundown of how she demolished her life, how she and her husband, uh, she talked to her husband wanting this divorce. They agreed to sell their home in Pennsylvania, and they needed to, to leave there and go back to New York, so they went to, to Brooklyn, lived in separate apartments a few blocks apart, sharing the kids between them, and so on. Inscribing her new life, she said, houseless, husbandless, half the night's childless, I had never felt so exposed out there on the cliff face of single life. I tried to pretend I wasn't scared, but I was. Trice, twice, trying to keep track of the kids in the park by myself, I lost my oldest son. He ran ahead to the playground and I lost him. I looked and looked and then shouted his name and then I panicked. One time, someone else's husband finally helped me find him. "Honey, help that poor woman," his wife probably told him. They felt sorry for me, and I didn't care. I was abject with gratitude. At that moment, I missed acutely the comforts of our Pennsylvania yard, the quiet street, and the swing set that was only our own. And she said something that made me weep. She said, by breaking up our family, I'd taken something from my kids that they were never going to get back. Naturally, I thought about this a lot. There was nothing that I could give them to make up for it, except maybe a way of being in the world, of being open to it and open in it. And in conclusion, she said, maybe I'm deluding myself. Maybe I'm not free of anything, and I just want different objects, a different home. Maybe someday, admit it, a different man. Maybe I'm starting the same story all over again. For what, you'd ask me, and you'd be right. But I don't think so. I think I'm making something new. And that was that was how the article ended. This was an article by a woman who had by worldly standards at least a somewhat decent life, if not better, but she demolished that life of her own accord. That's what she called it. And now is trying, if I may borrow a phrase, to build back better. She thinks she's building something new. She wanted something different and so she demolished that life and brought great trouble and upheaval to those around her. Sometimes those kinds of things happen in life and we can go further. Those kinds of things often happen in life. People bring trouble on themselves and on others by their sinful behavior. Proverbs 13 15 speaks to this general truth when it said good understanding produces favor but the way of the treacherous is hard. Now that proverb and those like it are proverbially true. And that is to say that they tell us something about the way in which the world generally works. And in that they tell us something about the way in which the world generally works, it means that there are exceptions to the rule. This means that sometimes good understanding does not produce favor. And that sometimes the treacherous seem to get off scot-free while the way of the righteous is the way that is in fact hard. And it is precisely this that sometimes the way of the righteous is hard, that is the subject of the book of Job. Job was, as we will see, a righteous man who still had great trouble and sorrow in this world. In a way, it's not too much of a stretch to say that he was a righteous man whose life was demolished, not by his own doing either. His life was destroyed excuse me, was not destroyed as a consequence of some ungodly bent in his life. His life was demolished rather through the malice of Satan and, importantly, the righteous permission of God. As one writer expressed it, Job's main purpose is to remind us of a very important fundamental truth. Sometimes the wise and righteous suffer even when they do everything right. And this is a big part of what makes the book of Job so hard. It speaks to us of something of which we all know. We all know that there is suffering in the world. And some of you have suffered acutely. And some of you perhaps have been spared large swaths of suffering. But even if you have witnessed suffering in the world, you you know that it's out there. And on the one hand, suffering makes sense. Because we know that sin brings suffering. We may not love this. But we understand that it makes sense. But what about the suffering of the righteous? How do we make sense of that? How could a good God allow it? And on a practical level, how should we conduct ourselves when it's we who are in the midst of it? These are the kinds of questions we ask, and these are the kinds of questions with which the book of Job wrestles. Now just by way of introduction to the book of Job. The book is a bit of an outlier in the Old Testament canon. It's a bit of an outlier in terms of history, in terms of geography, in terms of national and familial connections. The book of the Old Testament, as you know, is focused on God's saving purposes being worked out and brought to fruition, ultimately in the fullness of time through Christ, but working up to that point through the nation of Israel. There's nothing in the text, however, to make us think that Job was an Israelite. Quite the opposite, in fact. We're told that Job lived in the land of Uz, and we're not entirely sure where that is. It seems likely, probably, that it was somewhere in Arabia, not far from the land of the Chaldeans and of the the Sabians, who attacked his servants and seized his property, as we'll find here in chapter 1 tonight. We read of more than one man named Uz in the book of Genesis, and uh, to... In my mind, the most likely suspects for the namesake of the homeland of Job would either be the Uz listed in Genesis 10.23, who was a grandson of Shem, or else the Uz of Genesis 22.21, who was the son of Abraham's brother Nahor. So in other words, there was an Uz who would have been a cousin to Isaac. It would not be too much of a stretch to suppose that the land of Uz in which Job lived was the territory that had been associated with one of these men and with their descendants. We know nothing for certain of Job's genealogy. The book of Job doesn't give us any genealogy of Job, but it's certainly possible that he was the descendants of one of these men named Uz and therefore lived in the land of Uz, and it is noteworthy, I think, that we find Laban referring to God in Genesis thirty one, fifty-three, as the God of Abraham and the God of Nahor. In other words, God is the God of both Abraham and his brother Nahor, the brother Nahor of whom Uz was the son. And so all of that to to say there were other believers other than, just, other than just Abraham and the Israelites. And I think in the book of Job we find an example of one of them. Some have thought and I would tend to agree that Job probably lived during the period between the patriarchs and the exodus from Egypt. Job, as we see in the text, lived in a time when it was allowable for a man to act as a priest to God for his household. A time when it would appear... That Uh, was prior to the Aaronic priesthood because after you have the Levitical priests and Aaron and his descendants acting as priests it's it's no longer uh, appropriate for a particular individual to serve as a priest for his household but Job served in that role and it seems somewhat reminiscent of the way that Noah functioned the way that Abraham functioned the way that Isaac functioned and so on and just as as a side note some have thought that Job's friend, Bildad the Shuhite, was a descendant of Abraham's son, Shua, who was born to his wife, Keturah, as we find in Genesis 25-2. Shua, we're told, was among those sons of Abraham who were explicitly sent away from Isaac, back to the land of the east. We find that in Genesis 25-6. And Job is called here in chapter 1 the greatest of the sons of the east. And so it would not be unreasonable to think that one of the descendants of Shua would be Job's friend. They both lived in this region referred to in biblical terms as the land of the east. Despite being an outlier in some of these ways and also a bit of an outlier in terms of genre in that it's a mixture of history, poetry, and wisdom literature, it's worth noting that Ezekiel mentions Job By name as a righteous man twice in the same chapter alongside of Noah and Daniel, Exodus fourteen excuse me, Ezekiel fourteen fourteen and Ezekiel fourteen twenty. James explicitly mentions Job and the Lord's dealings with him in James five eleven, and Paul quotes from Job five thirteen in first Corinthians three nineteen and uses the phrase for it is written indicating that he regards this as a, as a biblical, canonical authority from which he is quoting. In short, though there is much about this book that is mysterious and unknown to us, it is nonetheless Holy Scripture, and we will receive it as such. And so let's look to the text. Tonight will be just in Job chapter 1. So if you would, turn with me to uh, the book of Job, chapter 1. Our author writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and says, "There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless, upright, fearing God and turning away from evil. Seven sons and three daughters were born to him. His possessions also were 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys and very many servants. And the man was the greatest of all the men of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day. And they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. When the days of feasting had completed their cycle, Job would send and consecrate them, rising up early in the morning and offering burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, Perhaps my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where do you come? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, from roaming about on the earth and walking around on it. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one like him on the earth, a blameless man and upright man fearing God and turning away from evil. Then Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But put forth your hand now and touch all that he has. He will surely curse you to your face. Then the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power Only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. Now, on the day when his sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house, a messenger came to Job, saying, The oxen were plowing, and the donkeys were feeding beside them, and the Sabians attacked and took them. They also slew the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another came and said, The Chaldeans formed three bands and made a raid on the camels and took them and slew the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was still speaking, another also came and said, Your sons and your daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across... The wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell on the young people, and they died. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his robe, shaved his head, and fell to the ground and worshipped. He said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Through all this, Job did not sin nor did he blame God. Now this chapter tells us the beginning of Job's troubles. Let's notice four things here in the chapter. First, the character of Job. Second, the accusation of Satan. Thirdly, the permission of God. And fourth, the response of Job. So we have the character of Job, the accusation of Satan, the permission of God, and the response of Job. Now first, Job's character. Verses one through five tell us about our protagonist in this book. There was a man who lived in the land of Uz named Job, and notice that fourfold description of him. There, he's blameless, he's upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. What more needs to be said to describe the character of a faithful man? Certainly, Job was not a sinless man. He wasn't perfect in that sense, but nevertheless, a godly man. He was, to borrow the words of James Durham, sincere, no hypocrite, one that had the real fruits of holiness and piety, grace in his heart, and conversation. And you notice in verse 8 how the Lord repeats that fourfold description of Job, that he was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. The Lord even goes so far as to give Job the commendation that no one else Was like him on earth. So this man is is godly and faithful, a man who had the grace of God in his heart and the fruits of that grace in his life. And obviously, this was the most important thing about Job, but there is more here in the text. We find that he was blessed with a large family, seven sons and three daughters. He's blessed with material wealth. We see that he had many sheep, oxen, donkeys, camels, many servants. This was a man who has everything going on for him. He's the man who has found the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow, so to speak. He's godly, truly godly, blessed with a family, blessed with wealth. He has the total package. As such, no doubt, he's greatly respected among his peers. He's called there in verse 3, the greatest of the sons of the east. and verse 4, Four tells us about the habits of his children which seems to indicate that at this point his sons were grown that they had their own homes yet they loved their siblings very much and loved to spend time together. They would love to have each other over and hold a feast together. And verse 5 points to Job acting as a priest for his family again in the manner of Noah or the patriarchs. And I don't think this should be read in such a way as to make us think that Job's children were, were wicked but rather, we should read this as Job's great concern for the godliness of his children, his concern for potentially their secret sins that he knew nothing about. In other words, I don't think we should see Job as some variant of the character of Eli, who, as you recall from First Samuel, Eli did not deal with the wickedness of his children. He more or less just allowed them to, to keep on in their sinning. We should notice a great difference here between... What First Samuel tells us about Eli and what Book Job here tells us about Job. The wickedness of Eli's sons were, uh, was plain and clear. It's clearly indicated in the text of First Samuel. It's also clear that, that Eli himself was complicit to some degree in not rebuking his sons as he should have. And Eli himself is called out by God and judgment is announced because of Eli's sin in not restraining his sons and rebuking them. And this is a very, very different picture from what we have here in Job 1. Job is called by the Lord himself, blameless, upright, fearing God, turning away from evil. And so I think it would be very unfair to paint Job as somehow conniving at the ungodliness of his children. Rather, I think what we should see here is that Job is particularly scrupulous to make sure that even their secret faults and sins are atoned for. And... Verse 5 says that that he did this continually, right? He would would offer these sacrifices continually. And he is called blameless. And so this is is Job. This is what his character is like. And secondly, we see here the accusation of Satan. We see when Satan came in before the Lord, that the Lord intentionally directed his attention toward Job and gave him this glowing report and this divine approval that we've already considered from verse 8. But Satan replied that Job is not as good as the Lord proclaimed him to be. He said that Job is only serving the Lord for the sake of the benefits. He's only serving the Lord for the sake of the good stuff, the things that God gave him. Satan's charge was that God had blessed and protected Job, and that that was the reason why Job worshipped God, not because of God himself and of his own innate worthiness, but simply because of the stuff. It would be like... Saying to a parent, your child only loves you because of the Christmas presents, because of the nice meals, and because of the things that you can provide for them. Let those things be gone and your child will hate you. That's more or less the accusation that Satan brings to God about Job. Take the good things away and Job will curse you. In this we see that Satan is a liar. What he says about Job is not, in fact, borne out by the events as they progress in the text. We see here that he is an accuser. It's no wonder that the loud voice in heaven proclaimed in Revelation 12.10 that Satan was the accuser of the brethren, the one who accuses them before God day and night. He is a liar and the father of lies, and making false accusations is his occupation. Don't be surprised if Satan falsely accuses you, even falsely accuses you, to yourself. Don't be surprised if he lies and tells you untrue things about yourself and your relationship to God. This is what he does. The accuser is going to accuse. The third thing that we see here is the permission of God. That God allows Satan to do what he wants to with Job's possession. And he does what he wants to do with Job's possession there as seen in verses 13 through 19 when those four servants of Job come to him with the news that gets increasingly worse with each one. It has been said that in the ancient world of the, the animals of Job, the, doc, the, uh, the oxen and the donkeys would have been the least valuable. Job gets the news about them first. More important than, than those would have been the sheep. He gets the news about them. Secondly, The most important of the animals would be the camels. He gets news about them, third. And then, to top it all off, he gets the news about his children. This is the crowning blow. Losing one child is a horrific tragedy. Losing ten children, all of your children, in a single day, in a single event, would be terrible beyond words. And these things happened by the permission of God. God is always sovereign, even over tragedy and evil. God permitted Satan to afflict Job in this way, and Satan accomplished it. It is noteworthy how even Job acknowledged that ultimately God was sovereign over his calamity. He says there in verse 21, The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. He didn't say the Lord gave, and now Satan has taken away. Though Satan was an instrument through which the calamity came, God had not relinquished control. Evil was actually under control. God had put limits on what could be done to Job. Job's person here in this first round could not be touched as he, God gave the limits to Satan in verse 12. In all of this, Satan was on a leash. And now I realize that this truth is sometimes troubling. And... It's not an easy thing for us to accept that great tragedy can take place by the permission of God that the Lord took away by allowing Satan to afflict Job. But to those who are troubled by this, I would, I would say a couple of things. One, that this is actually the best of all possibilities. It is better for us to live under the dark mysteries of a frowning providence of our loving Heavenly Father, even when we don't understand what is happening, even when we can't make sense of it, even when it hurts us so much that we can hardly stand it, that is better than it would be to live in a world where evil was literally and actually out of control. A world where not even God could control the evil that occurred in the universe. A world like that would truly be a frightening world with absolutely no limit on any kind of evil that could happen. It's better for us to live in ignorance of God's particular purposes in regard to all that he does, to trust that he is wiser than we are, and to submit to him than it would be to live in a world in which things were outside of his control. And not only is this the best of all possibilities, what is much more important is this is the way that the world actually is. This is reality. It doesn't matter what possible world we want to live in. We have to live in the real world, the world that God has ordained. And we don't create reality. And the scriptures declare to us that God is sovereign even over the evil that occurs in the world. And so Jesus says, Matthew ten twenty nine. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent, and yet not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father? Likewise, in Ephesians 1.11, we read that God is the one who works all things after the counsel of his will. And this is how God ensures that all things work together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose, as we find in Romans 8.28. Now, saying all of this doesn't mean that we should treat suffering flippantly or lightly certainly not. There's nothing flippant or light about suffering. But we must never abandon the biblical truth concerning the sovereignty of God in suffering. And Lord willing, as we go along, we'll have more opportunities to consider this subject. The book of Job deals with this subject at length, and it would not be wise for us to attempt to short-circuit the conversation and compress it all down into a single soundbite. Job has 42 chapters, so let's... Let's take some time as we we work through the book and consider this subject of the sovereignty of God and human suffering. And let's notice, fourthly, the response of Job. How did Job respond to all that happened? We could summarize Job's response in two words. He grieved and he worshipped. He was grieved by what had happened and he showed it by the outward marks of grieving that were culturally acceptable and in use in his time by tearing his robe and shaving his head. But that was not the end of his response. We find that he fell to the ground and worshipped in those telling and heartfelt words of verse 21. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He worshipped God, despite everything that had just happened to him. Satan was wrong. Job truly loved the Lord, and not, just, not thus the outward benefits. The Lord struck Job and his possessions. Job comes through the test, right? He, he worships the Lord, he loves the Lord, he does not curse the Lord. We find in verse 22, through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. John Gill, I think, helpfully commented on verse 22 by saying that Job did not arraign God's wisdom nor charge him with folly, though there might be some things he could not account for or see into the reasons of them. He knew the Lord could. He considered that he was a God of knowledge, the only and all-wise God, and did all things after the counsel of his will and to answer the best ends and purposes, and therefore he submitted all To God's wisdom. Nor did Job himself speak foolishly of God, arraigning his justice and holiness as if he had done wrong to him. He knew there was no unrighteousness in God, nor in any of his ways and works, and that he had a right to do what he would with his own, to give it or take it away at his pleasure. He spoke nothing that was unsavory, nothing contrary to right reason and true religion, nothing unsuitable unto or unbecoming him as a man, as a religious man, and as in connection with God, a servant of his, and one that feared him. In short, Job submitted to the tragedy, to the loss, to the pain, and he trusted God. He didn't charge God with wrongdoing. And in this, Job is a model for us when we suffer. First, it's all right to grieve and to mourn. That is perfectly fine and normal and natural. But we must still worship. We must still not charge God with wrong, even when it hurts and even when we don't understand why. As we consider this morning, we know that God tests His people. Again, to quote from 1 Peter 1, seven, This is so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Gold is tried in the fire. It's heated up. The dross is consumed. And what's left behind is the pure gold. It's the same way with us as the children of God. The trials test us, demonstrate that our faith is real and genuine. The impurities, the sin is burned off We're purified. And in the end, Christ is glorified through it. And finally, let me leave you with this. When you suffer and when you don't understand why or when you see suffering in the world and you're perplexed by it, let me just say, keep looking to Jesus. Jesus is the supreme example of the righteous sufferer. Job was a righteous and godly man. Not perfectly so, yet truly so. But Jesus is the perfectly righteous one. The truly holy one was perfectly sinless and yet suffered more than any man as he suffered the wrath of God. And so when we are troubled by suffering, either by our own or that which we see in the world, let's do what the writer to the Hebrews exhorts when he says, Consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Let's consider Christ so that we do not grow weary nor lose heart. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for, for Christ, for his suffering for us, for his, his death, his burial and resurrection, his ascension to your right hand. Father, we pray that as we look at suffering in the world, as we consider the suffering in our own lives, that we would in all things be pointed to Christ, that we would consider him, that we would consider his suffering, that we would see that suffering is not gratuitous, that it is not in vain, but rather it serves ultimately your purposes. So Lord, we pray that you would help us not to lose heart and not to lose hope. Lord, we ask your blessing now as we prepare to come to the Lord's table. We pray that you'd strengthen us and nourish us as we consider afresh the death of Christ on our behalf. We give thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.